Well, we are in our last week in this uh, series in Song of Songs, True Love for a World of Cheap Imitations. Uh, and I can testify that the series has uh, had a positive impact on my own marriage. Um, I told the story a few weeks ago of how um, every time my wife and I take a road trip, uh, I will at some point ask her to pull out the road atlas, and this will inevitably end up uh, with a fight. Um, this past week, we drove to Chicago uh, for a couple days, and I can report that we uh, did so without incident this time around. We were able to pull out the map, and, and the stress level rose a little bit, but we made it through. We, we didn't get into an argument. It was fantastic, so uh, hopefully it will be having a positive impact on your relationship as well. As we uh, prepare to open God's Word, please pray with me. God, I thank you so much uh, for your word. I thank you for the gift it is to know uh, who you are through the words of Scripture. I thank you for the, the gift of, um, of love that you've given us. I thank you for uh, marriage, intimacy, love. I, I thank you for giving us these great gifts, and I pray that through your word we would understand better uh, how to approach these topics and how to live uh, with integrity uh, before you uh, for the great joy that you have um, put within these uh, I pray that you'd send your spirit so that we would hear rightly, so that we'd know uh, the truth and be able to live according to it. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Um, of all the tasks that end up on my to-do lists uh, week to week, uh, the one task that I really dislike more than any other is, is making phone calls. I don't, I don't know what it is about phone calls. Uh, I can text, I can email, all those things, but picking up the phone and actually dialing another person's number, is, there's, there's something about it that just I really dislike. So uh, if I come to a day and, and on that particular day uh, calling someone is on my to-do list, everything else is going to get done before I actually make that phone call. So I will, I'll be rearranging my desk, I'll be making sure all my files are in order, I'll, I'll make sure all my emails are answered, I'll even water my plants in my office, anything to kind of put off the dreaded moment of making that call a little bit longer. Uh, so as I said, we're in the last week of this series in Song of Songs, and, and uh, if you've been, know anything about the Song of Songs, if you've been following along and hearing the different passages, you know that it talks a lot about intimacy, it talks a lot about sex, and yet we haven't actually uh, directly spoken about sex uh, in this series yet, and you might wonder if I'm kind of putting it off, like it's the dreaded phone call of the book of Song of Songs. We're going to kind of put off this subject as long as possible. We've skirted around this topic uh, that has come up in the book a number of times uh, as we've looked at different aspects of love, love and marriage. We keep kind of putting off the big talk. Uh, and some of you who have uh, younger kids at home might be doing the same in, in your home right now. You know that someday you're going to have to have the talk with your kids, but you're, you're kind of putting it off as long as possible. Uh, that's actually not what we're doing here. That's not why we've waited. I actually really love to talk about this. It might sound a little bit weird to say, but think of it more like uh, dessert. We're kind of saving the best for last. We don't want to ruin your appetite for the rest of the picture of what's going on uh, with love and marriage. And, and really, it's, it's incredibly important for us to talk about sex from the perspective of the Bible because our views of sexuality are going to come from somewhere and I realize that for every single message that you are going to hear in church about sex, you're going to have thousands of images and stories and messages that are forming your view of sexuality from a different kind of perspective. So if we never talk about this in uh, church, if we never talk about this from the Bible's perspective, we're going to end up being more formed by other narratives than by God's design uh, for sexuality. So let's get into this this morning. We're going to look at the, the middle chapter of the book of Song of Songs. It's a good example of what we're talking about here. So we're looking at Song of Songs chapter 
chapter 4, and then we'll get into the first verse of chapter 5 as well. So go ahead and turn there in your Bible, Song of Songs chapter 4. Um, you, if you don't have a Bible, you want to grab one, uh, we have brand new uh, pew Bibles this week, a gift from someone in the church. It's found on page 1053 of the uh, pew Bibles. We're excited to have these new pew Bibles, and it's the, the updated translation that I, uh, that I use uh, for preaching as well. So we're going to see three movements in the text uh, of Song of Songs this morning. And then check this out. They all start with D. I don't think I've ever done alliteration before, but, but here it is. It's describing beauty and then a desire for union and then delight in lovemaking, three Ds. Uh, so we're going to start off with the first one here, describing beauty. So this is how this text starts off. It's the first movement of the text. And it starts off with a man describing the beauty that he sees in this one that he loves. How beautiful you are, my darling. Oh, how beautiful. Your eyes behind your veil are doves. Your hair is like a flock of goats descending from the hills of Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of sheep just shorn, coming up from the washing. Each has its twin. Not one of them is alone. Your lips are like a scarlet ribbon. Your mouth is lovely. Your temples behind your veil are like the halves of a pomegranate. Your neck is like the Tower of David, built with courses of stone. On it hang a thousand shields, all of them shields of warriors. Your breasts are like two fawns, like twin fawns of a gazelle that browse among the lilies. Until the day breaks and the shadows flee, I will go to the mountain of myrrh and to the hill of incense. You are altogether beautiful, my darling. There is no flaw in you. So this is a poem that's describing the beauty that the man sees in this woman that he loves. And, and, and he goes about every part of her, he's looking at and describing, and every part of her is beautiful. He says, there is no flaw in you. And if we look at the next chapter, in chapter 5, verses 10 through 16, we see that the woman feels the same way about the man. We get a, a complimentary description. My beloved is radiant and ruddy, outstanding among 10,000. His head is purest gold. His hair is wavy and black as a raven. His eyes are like doves by the water streams, washed in milk, mounted like jewels. His cheeks are like beds of spice, yielding perfume. His lips are like lilies, dripping with myrrh. His arms are rods of gold set with topaz. His body is like polished ivory decorated with lapis lazuli. His legs are pillars of marble set on bases of pure gold. His appearance is like Lebanon, choice as its cedars. His mouth is sweetness itself. He is altogether lovely. This is my beloved. This is my friend, daughters of Jerusalem." So the woman is doing the same thing. She's seeing every part of his body from the top down, and she concludes he is altogether lovely. What we see happening is that these two lovers are taking the time to actually stop and notice this other person. As they describe every part of each other's bodies, they're expressing the fact that they actually see this person that they love. They're not rushing the process here. There's an appreciation for the real beauty in that other person. Now, there's a contrast here between what we see happening in Song of Songs and what we see more commonly in our day. At the face level, it might look kind of similar. It's an appreciation of beauty and, and describing what, what the other person is like. But in our day, we see lots of images that are intentionally sexualized. And these images are designed to draw our eyes and draw our attention and draw our minds in. Advertisers use this to great effect. You'll see much more advertisements with women on them than with men because they know that both men and women are actually going to look at those images of women longer than if it was a man in that advertisement. 
And of course, the most explicit of these is pornography, and, and it's designed to draw your attention, to draw your mind in, and to get you to look at these images and to really fix your eyes on them. And you might see these descriptions, and, and, sound, and they might sound kind of similar. It's a, it's a top-down look at, at, at the whole person, a description of how beautiful they are. But there's actually a huge contrast here. See, pornography is about me. It's not about them. There's no relationship there at all. This is about an experience of the person viewing who is able to control that experience in their own mind, and there's no interaction at all. And in fact, that's what it's all about. It's about no relationship at all. It's a very selfish, self-centered kind of thing. So what this description of beauty in Song of Songs really highlights is that most of us have lost the ability to appreciate beauty in a right and healthy kind of a way. And I'll hear people sometimes excuse viewing sexual images or staring at a woman by saying that what they're doing is simply appreciating beauty. But really what is happening here is that we are reducing another image, another person who is made in the image of God to simply an object of sexual desire. And the statistics of surrounding pornography and this kind of thing are really not good and the results are even worse. What's going on in Song of Songs 4 is quite different from this. This isn't fantasizing about some kind of idealized other person that's a stranger that you have no relationship with. It's about seeing this other person that you have this covenant relationship with within marriage. It's seeing your spouse and seeing the beauty in that person. It's like people who get really excited about their home state where they, where they live. I love it when people talk about how great it is where they live, how great it is where they grew up. And you guys do this all the time. Michigan people are always talking about how much they love Michigan. They're talking about the Great Lakes and the beaches and the state park and all the natural beauty. They love talking about Michigan. Last summer when Outdoor Magazine did their best towns uh, in the U.S. of 2016 and Ludington was making it deeper and deeper into the finals of that, our, our whole town was excited because we felt like Ludington was getting the recognition that it deserves. It's a beautiful town with a beautiful beach, great natural resources. It's a great place to live. And we were so excited that people were recognizing that more nationally as well. Here's the thing. There, there are tons of beautiful towns in the United States. We could focus on what we don't have, for example, mountains. But instead of that, we're celebrating the beauty that's here. We're celebrating what we get to experience day in and day out. And we don't feel like we're missing something by living here. That's fantastic. It's really good. And that's what we see happening here. It's a man and a woman looking at this person that they're married to and describing the beauty that they see there. You are altogether perfect. You are beautiful. There is no flaw in you. Now, if you're married, you should be taking notes on this. Here's a really simple place to start. Look at your spouse. Look at this person that God has gifted you. Here is someone who is made in the image of God. I don't know if you've considered that. This person that you are married to is made in the image of God. They bear the likeness in some way of God himself. That is an incredible reality. Take the time to don't just walk through life like this. Yes, do that. But then turn and look at the other person. Look at the beauty that God has made within them. And then tell them. Express what you see when you see them. There's a beautiful person that you are married to, and you get to experience that and describe and delight in their beauty. So that's the first movement, describing the beauty that, that the man sees in this woman that he loves. And then we move from there to a desire for union. So after describing the beauty of this woman, the man now wants to get closer. Picking up again in verse 8 of Song of Songs 4, the man says this, "'Come with me from Lebanon, my bride.'" 
Come with me from Lebanon. Descend from the crest of Amana, from the top of Sinir, the summit of Hermon, from the lion's den and the mountain haunts of leopards. You have stolen my heart, my sister, my bride. You have stolen my heart with one glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace. How delightful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much more pleasing is your love than wine and the fragrance of your perfume more than any spice. Your lips drop sweetness as the honeycomb, my bride. Milk and honey are under your tongue. The fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. You are a garden locked up, my sister, my bride. You are a spring enclosed, a sealed fountain. Your plants are an orchard of pomegranates with choice fruits, with henna and nard, nard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon, with every kind of incense tree, with myrrh and aloes and all the finest spices. You are a garden fountain, a well of flowing water streaming down from Lebanon. So within these verses, there is an invitation to union. Simply put, the man wants to sleep with this woman. He has noticed her beauty, and he's described how wonderful he thinks she is, and now he wants to experience the fullness of that beauty by an intimate relationship with her. Now, I I realize I'm connecting the dots a little bit by saying that she is his wife. Uh, There are textual clues that this is true. So at the end of chapter 3, we see uh, what looks like a marriage scene, and then throughout you'll hear him saying, my bride. Uh, You probably caught also that he says, my sister. That's probably not literally true. It's a a manner of speaking, so don't get too caught off there. Uh, But probably my bride is a more literal, uh, more literally true. Uh, But even uh, apart from all that, more importantly, in the Bible, God's intention for sex is consistently shown to be within the covenant promises of marriage, one man and one woman united for life. And any kind of sexual activity outside of that relationship is, in biblical terms, sexual immorality. It's against God's good design for where sex should flourish and is designed to flourish, and and therefore it is considered rebellion against God. It is sinful activity. The fact that this book, Song of Songs, is a celebration of human love and intimacy within the framework of the Bible means that this is to be experienced by a husband and wife together. And what's important for us to see is how vital it is that they have a relationship and how vital that relationship is for this desired union. In our day, there's increasing pressure, especially toward uh, young adults, to conform to what is called hooking up, which is essentially sex without any kind of commitment. And the research has shown that this is a a pressure that younger adults feel. It is uh, kind of uh, put out there as a normative thing that everyone does, and because it's uh, the, the narrative is that everyone does this, even those who don't really want to engage in it see that, well, everyone else is doing it, so there's a social pressure to conform to that. And sex outside of uh, any kind of relationship might actually use similar terms to what we see in this passage. But really, it's an attempt to isolate the pleasure of sex from the context that makes that pleasure so fulfilling. Uh, C.S. Lewis, who wrote The Chronicles of Narnia and a bunch of other books, gives us analogy to see uh, how skewed our thinking on this can be. He says that seeking to isolate the pleasure of sex from the fuller marriage relationship where it's designed is like trying to isolate the pleasure of taste from the experience of eating food. So you've got your plate before, you take a, a big bite of this juicy hamburger, and you take a couple, uh, you chew it a couple times, and you spit it out on your plate. You grab a couple French fries and you chew them for a minute and then you spit them out next to the hamburger remains. You take your Coke, your nice ice cold Coke, you take a sip of it and then you spit it back out. Well, you've had the pleasure of tasting your meal, 
but you're going to go home hungry. We would call this an eating disorder, and rightly so. So what is offered to us as a picture of normal sexuality, what is considered sexual freedom in our day, is really a sexual disorder. See, what we have to come to see is that the Bible's picture of sex is so much better than this. We, We settle for lesser things, but there is a picture of something so much more fulfilling and so much more satisfying. I mean, listen to how the man describes the anticipated pleasure of that union in the last verses that we just looked at. See, he's, he's, he's experiencing, he's talking about it like the experience of, of having the, the best fruits, the best produce, the best spices that the world of his day had to offer. And the list is far-reaching, it, it's broad. She, she's not simply an object that he can use to get some kind of, of temporary pleasure. She is the one who is united to him. She is the one who brings him satisfaction and great delight. Indeed, this is how we see it moving as we move toward the third movement in the text, delight in lovemaking. We see that this woman feels the same way. Look at verse 16. She responds, Awake, north wind, and come, south wind. Blow on my garden that its fragrance may spread everywhere. Let my beloved come into his garden and taste its choice fruits. And then he responds, I have come into my garden, my sister, my bride. I have gathered my myrrh with my spice. I have eaten my honeycomb and my honey. I have drunk my wine and my milk. And the friends respond, eat, friends, and drink. Drink your fill of love. So we see the reciprocity here. The man describes his his desire for union with this woman. And then the woman responds by receiving the man that she loves, welcoming him to enjoy the experience of making love with her. And the text uses delicate language here, but it's clear that they have been united with one another. And the response of the man to this is a celebration of the great satisfaction that he feels. This has been a fulfilling experience for this couple, and they delight in it. And his friends, too, the friends affirm that this is a good thing, and they encourage the couple to uh, delight in this, find fulfillment in each other. It's like when we go to a wedding ceremony. What we are doing is celebrating with this couple the consummation of their marriage. We're saying, yes, this is a good thing, and you should continue to enjoy one another. We want to uphold that relationship. This is good. And notice that this is also a picture of mutuality here. The man is expressing his desire for union, and then the woman responds with openness. There's no coercion here. This isn't about power or gains or anything like that. This is two people opening up to each other and giving themselves to one another. And that's really the biblical pattern of how husbands and wives should interact with each other. So the Apostle Paul, when he's writing to the church in Corinth, which is a place where there are all sorts of, of sexual confusion and problems, he's reminding Christian husbands and wives that they are called to mutual self-giving, and that includes in the aspect of their sexual relationship. So this is 1 Corinthians chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. He's saying, now for matters you wrote about, and then he quotes them, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. That's what they've been saying. But Paul responds, but since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Do not deprive each other, except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. 
And then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish that all of you were as I am, but each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. Now, Paul's going to continue in that passage to talk about how actually singleness, being single and not married, is a great uh, mode of life for ministry and for service of the church, which is a good reminder for the church today that we should not put pressure on single people to marry. This is not normative for everyone. But it also reminds us that within the marriage relationship, sex is a good thing. And Paul is maybe a bit less celebrative than the Song of Songs is, but he's still saying that married people should be having sex. This is part of the mutual self-giving relationship of marriage. A husband is not the boss of his own body, and, and the wife is not the boss of her own body. The two have become one flesh. They are united now by God's design. And, and indeed, Song of Songs is describing a return to the pattern that God made, the good pattern at the beginning of creation. It's like the man and the woman here in Song of Songs have gone back to the Garden of Eden and are experiencing love as God originally designed it to be. We looked at Genesis 2 the very first week we started this series, and it's worth coming back to. God creates the man, and he creates the woman, and as as soon as the man sees the woman, this is what he says. This is Genesis 2, beginning in verse 23. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. In other words, he's saying, This is the right one for me. And it says this in verse 24. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. So that's the goodness of God's creation. All along, God creates. He says, this is good. This is very good. The man and the woman together, united, one flesh, naked and unashamed, each for the other. And that same pattern is what's described in the celebration of love and Song of Songs, that the shame, the confusion, the, the heartache that surround love and relationships have given way to the beauty that God has designed us for. And the result of experiencing that, as we see at the end of uh, chapter 5, verse 1 there, is satisfaction. Two people who delight in the fulfillment of their relationship. And this is really a, a big clue for us to the fact that there's something wrong with prevailing attitudes towards sex. What we tend to view as sexual freedom is having sex with whoever you want, whenever you want, as long as it's consenting adults, right? That would be considered sexual freedom today. And we think that that is what's going to lead to happiness. That's what's going to lead to satisfaction. But the truth is it never quite works like that. And we see this even in some of the cultural examples. There's a subplot within the movie Hitch from a number of years ago that shows this. There's this man who is enthralled with a particular woman. He works really hard to win her over. But when he finally succeeds in his goal of getting her to sleep with him, he is dissatisfied. He's disappointed. And so he walks out on her, he leaves her, and then she is devastated because she has just been used. See, something's wrong with this picture. That's what we tend to view as sexual freedom. And yet it doesn't actually work. And you see evidence of this in the, the aisles on the checkout of the grocery store. You see the cover of a Cosmo magazine. They always say something like, try this to drive him crazy tonight. Now, what's interesting about titles like that is that they betray a dissatisfaction that many of us feel when it comes to intimacy. See, the draw of articles like that is rooted in the fact that people sense that there should be something more here. 
There's a feeling that, that somehow something is missing. And so maybe there's some new magical technique, something that we can do, some new position that will improve satisfaction, something that will finally make sex reach that level of fulfillment that people are looking for. And frankly, this is why so many people are unfaithful to their spouses. They get bored in this relationship. They feel like there's something missing, and, and there's a thrill associated with illicit sex. And that thrill increases excitement for a time and seems to perhaps be moving toward that something more, that something that we feel is missing. But here's the problem. It is a bottomless pit. If you go down that road, you will never be satisfied and the devastating cost of that leads a wake of destruction behind. Listen, I've seen people who have gone down that road. You do not want to go down that road. Our dissatisfaction is pointing us beyond sex. It's pointing us to the God who created us for real love. Listen, God, God knows every part of us. He created every part of our being. He knows what is best for us. It's only when we find in Him our ultimate source of satisfaction, our ultimate sense of love, that then we are able to turn and learn to love this spouse that He has given us. And when we actually do that, we are able to start to experience the kind of intimacy that is truly fulfilling and truly satisfying, more satisfying than we dreamed possible. Listen, the Bible's picture of sex is so much better than any alternative. I shared a quote from the, the songwriter John Mark McMillan a few weeks ago. He says, intimacy is way better than novelty. And that's right, intimacy is way better than novelty. And if we continue to look to novelty to provide what only intimacy is able to provide, we're going to go deeper and deeper down that rabbit hole and farther and farther away from true satisfaction. And we have to admit, sex is good. This is a gift that's been given to us by God. It is part of His good creative design. And it finds its true place within the covenant promises of marriage. One man and one woman united together with these covenant promises for life. And it is only within this lifelong commitment that we are able to find the mutual self-giving relationship where trust and security allow us to truly open ourselves to another person and to truly give ourselves to them. Parents, a word. Teach your kids. You've got to teach your kids this. This is a huge discipleship element, especially in our time. Here's the truth. Your kids are going to learn somehow. If this is a taboo subject in your home, then your children's natural curiosity and, frankly, their need to know are going to lead them to look elsewhere to find answers. I saw a New York Times article last year that reported an increasing percentage of young people and young adults who are actually looking to pornography for their sex education because they're not getting it elsewhere. If you do not teach your kids, someone else is going to teach your kids. And I can almost guarantee that they're not going to teach them what God's design for this is. They're not going to learn what real, uh, healthy, mutual, giving, satisfying sex really is. Don't wait to have the talk with your kids. And actually, it shouldn't just be the talk, one single talk. This should be an ongoing conversation. And I realize this can be incredibly awkward. I realize you're probably going to stumble over your words. Your face might go red. That's okay. Maybe it's an opportunity for, for you and I also to learn or relearn the goodness of sexuality as part of God's good design. 
But whatever you choose to do, you have to start the conversation. You have to open this up so that your children know that they can go to you. And there's some really great age-appropriate resources. If you don't know where to start, come and talk to me. I've got some great resources for younger kids in particular. Talk to Pastor Travis. He's got some stuff for older kids as well. But don't wait too long. Kids are exposed to this at earlier and earlier ages, and you want to be able to give them a framework for understanding what people are talking about when this subject comes out. You want to take the, the taboo, uh, the, the forbiddenness out of that so that they're able to have a healthy understanding of what God's designed for this is. And you also want them to know that they can always come to you without fear, without shame. They can come to you with their questions. They can come to you with their their concerns and all of that, and they know that you will be there to listen to you and to hear. And we need to acknowledge that that the satisfaction and the fulfillment, the joy that we hear described uh, when it comes to love and intimacy and Song of Songs, that's foreign to many of us. It's an unusual kind of a thing. But I want to tell you, it is possible And I want to say this too, it is never too late to start rebuilding. It starts, first of all, by acknowledging and confessing our wrong attitudes and actions, whether it is uh, disconnection from our spouse, or whether it is viewing pornography, or whether it's having sex outside of marriage, or whether it's believing that sex is dirty. Many of us fall short of the beauty of God's design when it comes to thinking about sexuality. So it starts with us stopping and acknowledging where what we're doing falls short of the beauty and the goodness of God's design. If you're married, you need to have a conversation with your spouse. What does this look like for us? Where have we fallen short? How can we start rebuilding? How can we build into our marriage the goodness and the beauty that God has for us? If you're really stuck in this, do not try to do this alone. This is one of the worst decisions you could do, to try to just buckle down and do this in your own power. If you are stuck on this, you need to find at least one person that you can trust who is a gospel-believing, gospel-centered kind of a person and tell them how you're struggling. Be open and honest with them and then get the help that you need. And then after acknowledging and confessing where we've gone wrong, we also have to actually turn from those wrong attitudes and actions. See, sometimes I think we confuse admitting and confessing where we fail with actually dealing with it and doing something about it. Confessing is a really important part of this, but then we actually have to move toward action as well. And if we're going to do that, we have to actually believe the gospel. We have to actually trust that what is put forward in God's design here really is good that it really is best, that it really is a beautiful thing. And then we have to trust that he is able to redeem the most broken parts of our existence, our marriage, our lives. See, when we do that, when that begins to happen, when we trust that that God has a good plan for us, when we we come and and experience the forgiveness that is offered in Jesus through the cross, when the Holy Spirit is, is redeeming us, working in our hearts to renew our hearts and minds, then we're actually able to start walking with integrity when it comes to this. Here's what I want us to take away this morning. Sex and love and intimacy and marriage, they're wonderful things. And we have to see that the Bible's view of true love is so much better than any alternative. Don't settle for less than this. See, we are tempted to think that that the Bible's pattern of sexuality is is repressive and that it's, it's, it's shackles instead of freeing. But listen, understand that God has created something wonderful for us 
This is a fantastic gift that he has given us, and we can trust that, that following his plan here is going to lead to the most fulfilling experience of love ever. Please pray with me. God, we hear lots and lots of different things about what love is. We are surrounded by lots of different images and pictures and, and narratives of what sexuality should be, of what is repressive and what is freedom. And yet the reality is there is so much pain. There is so much confusion. confusion. Many of us have been hurt by this. I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would be reshaping your people so that we would be able to experience the best of what you have for us, that we would trust that your plan really is the most beautiful thing, and that as you send your Spirit among us, you would work toward healing in our hearts, healing in our minds. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.